Here we go. This is your host, Cameron Ivey of Privacy Please, and thank you so much for tuning in each and every week. If this is your first time, welcome to the show. Tell your friends about it if you like it. If you don't, let's just pretend you didn't listen to it. Thanks again for coming in, and we hope you enjoy the show. Basically, I was thinking, Nishant, you know, this is just conversation part two. Obviously, we can talk about the new chapters you've added in the book. And it sounds like, uh, Gabe, he was just hitting on right before you popped on. Nishant, you said you added some stuff around ransomware and breaches. Yeah, so we added several chapters. We gave people a hands-on architectural design on how to delete data. Like one of the big challenges for companies is you have all this data you're sitting on without a clear sense of how do you disposition of it. Like you don't need it anymore, but you can just hit delete. It's not like a Google Doc. So there's an entire system I have essentially have people build in terms of blowing away data. This is real-time event data. This is customer data from different systems. How do you schedule that deletion? There's a chapter for that. We have also added a chapter for data extraction. So based on the GDPR and the CCPA, there's expectations that you fulfill what is known as DSARs, that is data subject access requests. There's a chapter to do that. Then, of course, you might have heard about this company called Apple that is now mandating based on their new OS that you got to collect consent to store people's data and collect people's data across multiple platforms. There's these big newspaper articles about Tim Cook and Mark Zuckerberg going at each other in a not very friendly fashion. So there's a chapter on consent management. And then you're right, Cameron, I have a chapter on security-focused privacy. That is, how do you manage permissions? How do you manage the spread of data? How do you manage multi-factor authentication authorization? Basically, how do you fix security and privacy in one fell swoop? For too many companies, it's like, do we do security or do we do privacy? And make, I'm making the argument that there are certain things if done incorrectly pose a severe security risk. So business data and customer data walks out the door. How do you fix these gaps so that the mistakes that Target made in 2013, the mistakes that Colonial Pipeline made just last year don't happen again and again? You'd think that over eight years we would have learned, but we haven't as a, as a country, as a society, as an economy, and we need to get better. So there's chapters on that front. And then finally, the last chapter is about how do you build out a more maturity model for security and privacy? So just as there is capability maturity models for organizations, how do you build one for security and privacy to get attention from the board of directors? And then there is a little chapter in there for engineers to talk to regulators and influencers, because this notion where engineers know all the coding and the rest of the world just uses our product is pretty much gone. Because, you know, I've, I've, there's a chapter in there where I've mentioned Cape Gabe where Senator Hatch from Utah asked Mark Zuckerberg a question during the Cambridge Analytica hearings. You offer Facebook for free. He said, how do you pay for it? And Mark Zuckerberg was like, we run ads. It's problematic when the people who make rules for us on the tech side don't understand how tech actually works. So there's chapters about that as well. So there's a ton of new content since, since we last talked. So I'm super excited about that. Hmm. 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 There's a lot to dig into there. I want to start with the following and let it all flow from that. Sure. Do we do security? Or do we do privacy? Por que no los dos? Yeah, it's an interesting conundrum, right? So I started my career as a security engineering. By the way, just on that note, we actually changed the chapter of the, the name of the book. When I last spoke to you, it was privacy by design. We are now mm-hmm. calling it privacy engineering. Given that we're making the argument that a lot of these things that need to get fixed need to get fixed by the engineers. It's engineers that collect data. It's engineers that build these platforms. It's engineers that drive engagement. So they should be the ones fixing these things. This notion where the business gets to collect the revenue, the product managers get to have their PR releases, and the engineers get promoted, but nobody actually fixes the privacy and security issues is a conundrum that we need to sort of get past. So we call it privacy engineering. And the goal is whether it's privacy engineers or the folks who do privacy on the side, security on the side, they should be the ones fixing it. So to your point, Gabe, I don't think it's a choice anymore. Frankly, if you have privacy issues, you have security issues. So just as let's assume you have an inside bad actor who can walk away with customer data, they could just as easily walk away with IP data and give it to your competitor. Right. If you have somebody coming in from the outside and using access control and manipulating it to get more access, they could do whatever they want to, like the target breach from 2014. They got into the HVAC system. That is 
the air conditioning system. Talk about things cooling down, right? They literally put the security in the freezer and they were able to intercept the card processing machines and were able to download all the transactions. The similar thing happened to the Colonial Pipeline just a few weeks ago on the East Coast. Gas prices shot up to the roof, right? They mm-hmm. found an account that was being used for VPN purposes that was not completely destroyed. And that account was not using multi-factor authentication. And they were able to get into their network completely in that regard. You could do the same thing with the healthcare system, with education, with food delivery. I could find out what you eat, Gabe, or Cameron, the miles you burn on your, or the calories you burn on the Peloton device sitting on behind you. So... The gap between security and privacy is decreasing. So I wouldn't think of it as a choice anymore. You need to do both. Yeah. Okay. No, those dose indeed. Uh, privacy engineering. I love the topic. I love the topic. Yeah. yeah. I, I, think, I was going to say I like that a lot better. Yeah. I, I think you, Nishant, you probably know why I like it a lot better, don't you? I know. <laughs> there, was, there, was, there was a conversation that spun up over the weekend about uh, on LinkedIn about building building ethics into products and i had this visceral response to like i don't know if you can build ethics into a product but you certainly can have privacy engineering standards that people can build towards so that you're ensuring biases are accounted for and privacy is respected um i personally posited that privacy engineering sits right at the center of data privacy and application security but i'd like to get your take on that Oh, absolutely, Gabe. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And, you know, fundamentally, I think engineers will always do the right thing because if they do the wrong thing, somebody else, some other engineer has to clean up their mess. So engineers are always geared towards doing the right thing. But engineers also tend to be very creative. There is always pressure to get stuff out the door. There's continuous context switching. So this dichotomy between the moral compass pointing towards ethics and the personality compass and the professional compass pointing towards advancement There's tension there, right? So what I'm positing in the book, and I think the point you're getting at, Gabe, is the automation should sit as a sidecar besides engineering productivity. Yes. Just as tooling is available to do continuous deployment, just as tooling is available to do replication of code in different availability zones and data with AWS, just as there is automation available to do ML learnings for data scientists, why shouldn't there be automation embedded into how we do ethics, security, and privacy, right? And fundamentally, you have to clean up the mess somehow. You're going to be paying fines. You're going to be spending money on PR campaigns to fix trust issues. You could be taking some of that money and spending it up front to not have those problems to begin with and give engineers the ability to automate a lot of their checks. So as an example, when you want to ship a product out the door, in fact, even before you ship it, before you design it, how about having a little form that you can submit to privacy consultants in the team saying, here are a few things I'm doing. And if you meet four of the 10 criteria, you get a medium risk tag. And consultants from my team will come help you build the product from the get-go in a way that is privacy secure. If you check eight or nine tags, maybe we bring an attorney just to be completely certain that you have the right context. Let's have that check at the beginning of the process so you end up building things correctly from the get-go rather than having to fix things at the end when it's your promotion on the line, right? So there are ways you can spend money wisely. Is that in the book? That is in the book. There's chapter number six in the book. I've laid out the menus, the workflow all the way through. The goal here is to make sure that people can make the right choices and make sure that engineers and the salespeople aren't in conflict for the wrong reasons. It's all in the book. I think I need to go back and reread it now that you've updated it. Yes. And uh, and I, I want to point out to our listeners, mm-hmm. who I think we still have like one outstanding voucher. So if somebody wants to comment on this post when it goes live, that voucher can be yours. You can go grab, uh, you can go grab the latest version of Namisha's book, which is uh, privacy engineering. Um, can we can we stick on this topic just a touch more, please? Yeah, and for for first time listeners, just so everybody knows, Nishant leads a team to protect data and trust, teaches courses in security, privacy career management, and he is the head of privacy engineering at Uber as well. So So I actually have a job description, a privacy engineer sample job description open. It's one of the very few I've seen. This one, the the IAPP wrote it, right? And uh, can you just tell our listeners what a day in the life of an actual privacy engineer looks like? 
Great question, Gabe. There's also chapter 11 that talks about the different skill sets that go into privacy engineering. And uh, you can tell I'm getting to the end of the book writing process where I literally know what's in what chapter. It's like <laughs> here. So there are five or six different tiers you think about. There are the people who are engineers who write code for privacy. So there are people who report to me who don't really have in-depth privacy experience. And this is something else, a bit of a recruiting clarion call where I'm always looking for good engineers. And sometimes people don't apply for my roles because they're like, I don't have experience in privacy. Well, my question to you is, do you understand data? Do you understand collecting less, deleting more? Do you understand how to anonymize data? Do you understand how to manage access to data? If you understand those things, lacking the word privacy on your resume is not an impediment. You should apply for my roles anyway. So that's number one. If you have an understanding of how services, distributed systems, architectures, Kafka pipelines work, you are de facto a privacy engineer. So your tooling could include building capabilities to intercept data, to tag data, to delete data. So a big chunk of your time is building capabilities that are centralized in the company so that every other engineer doesn't have to come up with a customized version for themselves. Right. That's job number one. Another aspect of privacy engineering is what's known as privacy consulting. You offer other people guidance on how to build systems better. So for example, rather than creating another API to ingest data and making another copy of it, why not replicate data that somebody else has already collected in the system? Or rather, instead of replicating that data, why not just access their data and have just one data store, right? So privacy consultants will help you use existing systems and architectures better to save you time and reduce overall organizational risk. Then there are privacy architects. The role that I used to have at Uber before they promoted me, their job is to write standards and privacy policies. And these are not legalese policies. They are engineering policies. So as an example, if you have very sensitive GPS data that is six decimal points long that goes to your precise location, they'll say anonymize it by yanking off five decimal points and don't join it to somebody's email that anonymizes the data. Or if you are moving data from one data center to another data center, maybe encrypt it. But if you are moving it within the data center, don't need to encrypt it. So they offer you guidance in that regard. That's architecture. And doing it across the company is a pretty critical requirement. Another example before I hand the mic back to you is data scientists, data analysts. These are people who will give you a sense of if we change the menu this way versus that way, more people will make an informed privacy choice. It's a way to create transparency and trust. You know, I think about folks like my dad, Gabe, people who get confused very easily. They don't trust the tech companies, even though I work for one, but they want to know more about what happens to their data. So data analysts create UX and designs that are more customer friendly. So there's a lot that goes into privacy engineering. And frankly, in the US, we don't create enough talent. There is a tremendous talent shortage. So if we can create more homegrown talent, we will do a better job of protecting customers' data and make a better industry for all of us. It's kind of a long answer, but it's it's the right answer. I go off on on several talents about our inabilities to source them and not getting creative enough in where we need to take people from that have the skill sets to apply to the job to be done. And I think you just nailed on that really well, right? These folks don't apply for the job because they're thinking, I can't do this. And yeah. meanwhile, in your head, you're like, no, 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 here are the skill sets I need. You have them. I want you, right? Exactly. Uh, there needs to be a lot more of that across industry. Exactly. And the funny thing is, like, for too long, we have basically used phrases like throw you in the deep end, the smart people learn on their own. The real lesson is we as a, an industry need to do better about training engineers, whether it's in security or machine learning or fairness or data science. There needs to be some on the job training. And that's what we do here in my team. And that's what the book is for, which is my hope is that people can use this book as a training manual for engineers. There's enough in terms of what to do and what not to do. And it's a great investment. So I wrote this book because this book didn't exist when I was learning. And I had to learn by asking questions and making mistakes. My job is to make things just a bit easier. And 325 pages beats 30 days of worrying and mistakes making. So, And I think to your point, we'll put in the show notes the link to the, uh, the privacy engineering uh, GitHub that I threw up over the weekend for that same reason, right? What... What I came across was all of these different resources to help me on my journey. And I look around and everyone's still kind of struggling with this same journey themselves and how to get there and, and where the resources are to collect them, et cetera. So let me ask you the following question. It's a very leading question. Does the industry need a common body of knowledge that it can draw from to understand privacy engineering? 
I think it does. And that's part of why I wrote the book. But I think more fundamentally, when you look at every other aspect of life, there tends to be a common standard. Like you have to fulfill certain requirements to drive a car, although in the state of California with the way people drive, I'm not sure we have such a standard, but I digress. Uh, Look, we follow the same standards you do in, in, down here in Florida. It's clearly a standard, a de facto standard, uh, but a standard nonetheless. <laughs> I guess a lack of standard becomes a standard at a certain That's right. point when it comes to driving. <laughs> but, but I mean, more generally, when it comes to privacy engineering, the argument I'm making in the book is a lot of this is about writing good code. Like you wouldn't deploy stuff to production unless you have unit test, integration test, stress testing, pen testing. You wouldn't do that. Like if you told a CEO of a major retail online company that we're going to ship this thing online, but it can only handle 100 customers for customer number 101, good luck to you. That code's never going to ship to production. Why on earth would you ship something to production that doesn't manage access control correctly, that doesn't encrypt data correctly, that doesn't obfuscate somebody's home address correctly, that outs the fact that somebody is maybe a teenage person struggling with their sense of identity. Like, why wouldn't you protect somebody else's safety just like you protect your own safety as a business, especially if protecting their safety enables you to keep them as a customer as as well as do the right thing? So I feel the absence of a common standard hurts. Now, to be fair, GDPR and CCPA have made a start. People criticize these laws for their limitations. And obviously, all laws have limitations. Tax law has its limitations. I know I just paid my taxes a month ago, so I know. But you got to start somewhere. And I feel like the book is uh, the next step forward. GDPR and CCPA put out best practices, first principles and guidelines. The goal then is to provide engineers some hows. The engineers now understand the why and what to do and what not to do that we are GDPR and CCPA. The book takes a step forward and says, here's how. If I had to write the future, Gabe and Cam, what I would do is I would hope somebody in the regulatory sector, in the government sector, also in the corporate sector, looks at this book and says, let's come up with a standard that combines the regulatory arm, the policy arm of the privacy cybersecurity space, and the engineering arm in terms of the implementation details, and comes up with a standard that gives engineers a sense of certainty that they're doing the right thing. Because what I also want is for business to understand that if you do these three or four things, you're okay. You've done enough to protect user privacy because business needs certainty and the current uncertainty really hurts U.S. businesses as well. You mentioned the thing that you would not do as a developer is ship buggy code. It doesn't, it doesn't meet all the use cases. It doesn't perform. It doesn't, it doesn't create that value outcome for the customer. I spent a lot of years in the application security space, um, building application security building an application security program for a large company. Uh, and then by the time I exited there, we had some 1,400 web applications under, under our management. And then I went to work for White Hat Security where I started building products in the application security space. And here's what I'm going to tell you. Developers still push code with all the issues we just talked about. Developers still push code without use, unit testing, et cetera. Now, <clears throat> I've spent enough years beating up on developers that I, I believe I now owe them I owe them the responsibility of, not, of no longer making those statements. But, but here's what I'm getting at. Developers need to push value to customers. And you would be right that the value is lost if the bugs are there. But do we have the same driving force to put privacy into that engineering process? Before you answer, I want to, I want to equally add a little bit more of information to that. Mm-hmm. You know, Dr. Ann Shavakin proposed this idea of privacy by design over 10 years ago. And yet the application security space is arguably just half that time. And we're still fighting to get developers to write good code. I agree. And I I think it's it's a weird dichotomy, right? Where everybody agrees it's the right thing to do, but people still struggle to do it. I would say writing secure code is like the new diet if you will everybody thinks it's a good idea that famous cartoon where we want to go on a diet when tomorrow right it's it's the same thing here uh and i think monday 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 yeah exactly right after getting up at eight eight o'clock on monday morning right so i think the real challenge gave has been the absence of a start i feel like the absence of a starting point saying here's some things you can do and this is part of why i wrote the security focused chapter because My concern is people are going to look at the book and say, oh, my goodness, I have to catalog all this data. I've been collecting data for 10 years. I'll never catch up or I need to do privacy reviews. My engineers are used to shipping products without anybody stopping them. They'll never do this. Right. Right. And my goal is to give people different choices and different options. You can catalog your data. You can do deletion. You can do obfuscation. 
you can do data extraction to demonstrate trust, and you can close these security gaps. You can do all these things concurrently. These are not sequential in nature. And I totally get that companies have lean margins, companies have to pay their bills, talent is expensive, hiring people takes time. So I, frankly, I understand the imperative and the entire tech industry is born out of the idea where you ship an amazing product and you get promoted. So the entire culture is built to resist doing things that pay off in the long run. Yeah. We do things as engineers for immediate gratification and our tools deliver immediate gratification to our customers who then deliver us their data, which we can monetize for ads. The ecosystem is built on immediate gratification, right? So the argument I'm making is here's the risk. Here's how you can start fixing things and seeing immediate business benefit, or at least prevent the very bad thing that happened very recently to a company just like you. And then by the way, you have all these other things that you can do as well, gradually, incrementally. And if you read the chapters, the goal, I'm, I'm never suggesting anywhere in the book that you have to do things 100% of the time to be completely perfect. There are incremental tactical steps you can take. You can cut back on that donut and you can have a piece of carrot instead. You don't have to run 10 miles on the treadmill right away, right? There are steps you can take. And I feel like sometimes the mistake those of us on the InfoSec side make is we go for an overly maximalist approach. I remember I was in a room uh, during the Orrin Hatch, Mark Zuckerberg interview, the Senate hearing, and all the engineers in the room laughed loudly at Orrin Hatch. And I'm like, this guy is Senate President Pro Tem. He's number four in the Senate. He has more power than you ever will have in your life. And he regulates the company you work for. So I think it behooves us to take the first step and reach out to folks and show them how they can make their lives better. And I think there'll be more uptake. At least that's been my experience. In their defense, civics class is, I guess, not a thing we teach in America any longer, so. Yeah, I had to, I had to naturalize myself to become a citizen, so Exactly, I to, that's kind of my point, right? Like, yeah. you had to know that. Yeah. And I remember during my interview in the citizenship thing, when I passed the exam, the inspector looked at me and she's like, you know, you probably know more about U.S. civics and history than most people outside, so she busted up laughing the moment I cleared my exam, so I think there's, there's some... No, there's no probably in that statement. You can remove the probably and it would be it would be a more accurate statement. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you talk a bit about process, which I love, and you talk a bit about the people, namely having privacy engineers. Let's talk a bit about that last piece, the technology. Everyone likes to talk about people, process, technology. So, you know, we can do things like implement uh, multi-party computation. We can do things like implement differential privacy. We can add in homomorphic encryption. The challenge I'm seeing in the field, and I need you to validate this for me, invalidate, help our audience. How much of those components do you need as you attempt to build privacy into your engineering practices? How, how much of the current tooling can you use to do that? And how much of the new tooling out there will you absolutely must have in order to achieve it? Here's the thing, like people often get very, very intimidated by phrases like homomorphic encryption, it anonymization. Too. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a bit like when I was in fifth grade, my mom took me to the swimming pool and I saw the deep end of it and I let everybody else go in line ahead of me, hoping that I would run out the clock and the coach finally pushed me in the water and I had to swim anyways. So a lot of our engineers are sitting at, are standing at the edge of the pool, looking at homomorphic encryption at the bottom of the pool, thinking it's going to drown them. Can I push them? Huh? Can I push them? Please do. Actually, I would rather we tell them that the water is not too cold. Okay. Water is lukewarm. Jump okay. in. I would say rather than getting lost in the vocabulary, let's give them the techniques. Let's tell them, here's the before and here's the after and here's how you do it. Here's the options. Here's, just as an example, let's assume I want to anonymize a data set, right? That phrase is intimidating. Instead, what if I told you there's 50 records in this data, in this data store, and there's one record that uniquely identifies you, correct? But let's assume that there are only 50 people in the record, as I said before. What if I double the record by creating a copy of every other record in there. Now there's a 1% chance of identifying you. Let's assume I run a taxi service and, and you got picked up at two in the morning and got to the airport at 2.45. Now in that 50-person data set, you became a lot more identifiable because you're the only person that got picked up after midnight and between midnight and four. So what could I do? I could take out the AMs and PMs completely. And if, if my only record is to find out how many trips am I financing every given day and what does my revenue model look like? I don't need to find out whether you took the trip at the AM hour or the PM hour. That gives me what I need as a business owner and it gives you the level of anonymization that you need, right? Again, I don't have a fancy name for that, 
But the technique is very simple. I'm looking at the data holistically and identifying you in a way that helps me do what I need to do, but not identifying you personally, right? Another example, let's assume you and your daughter use your computer and let's assume your daughter looks for something that is very, very personal to her healthcare. If I place a cookie on your browser, okay, and you gave or you Cameron use the browser afterwards and you get an ad based on her search results, that's a problem. You could find out something that she'd rather not have you find out, right? So I could yeah. give her via my tooling an option saying, do you want to expire your cookies once you sign out? That way, only she gets ads germane to her and you don't get to find out. There are ways to build privacy protection that are very, very common sense and engineering combined. And I would say there's a time to learn encryption, homomorphic encryption. There's a time to learn things like access management. There's a way to get to that level. But don't, don't be afraid to take the first step because yeah. frankly, we need that considering how immature the industry overall is in the US across the board. Right. I, I, I have a strong appreciation for removing the words homomorphic encryption. You are right. People get very anxious when they hear that. It sounds too erudite, too, exactly. too academic. It's like, what, what is that? But if I simply said, hey, how about this process that's going to allow you to transform encrypted data and yet preserve the end privacy of the individuals inside of it. How would you feel about that? And the answer is probably, yeah, no, I like where that's going. And then yeah. I hit up with the fully homomorphic encryption. Um, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I'm, glad, I'm so glad you made the point, Gabe, because, and I like to tell my engineers this, like a lot of my engineers often have to go across the company, whether it's Uber or Google elsewhere, and say, here's privacy tooling that we have built. Please onboard it into your systems, right? Now, those other engineers have other stuff to do, right? They don't always have time to listen to privacy folks. That's just the reality of life. So what I tell them is good leaders always succeed by growing their movement. And if you look, if you make the example that, hey, look, my tools get used by 50 other teams like you. Their tools don't break. They don't get in trouble for privacy. And if you onboard my tool, you can spend that much more time building your core capability. So a lot of privacy is about communication and persuasion, right? If you look at some of the smartest leaders all over the world, ranging from presidents to business leaders, growing market share is the only way you succeed. And one of the challenges those of us in the InfoSec community have to recognize is that we sometimes have taken too much pride in being or thinking that we are smarter than the rest. The fact that we build tools that nobody else can understand is thought of as a badge of honor. In fact, in my opinion, it's a huge problem because what's the point of building amazing privacy or security tools if somehow breaches keep happening, fines keep growing? What are we accomplishing at that point, right? So we have to make our discipline more accessible, more understandable, so A, more people join our teams and help us build these products, and B, more people use these products and the breaches go down and the security and privacy posture improves overall. Karim, doing the thing I do again. I like that thing. I'm just I'm I'm one of the I'm one of the listeners. <laughs> you know, a lot of things are crossing my mind. Um and I feel like Nishant, you've already kind of touched on this, but I I still want to ask the question, why does privacy engineering matter? Why does it matter? And I just want to get your viewpoint on that. Yeah. So after we talked the last time, I made significant revisions to chapter one based on feedback that came in from the publisher and their peer reviewers. Uh, it's one of those things where data just grows in the company like crazy. It's one of those things where there is no way to undo certain things once you do them in life. Like there is no way to unsend an email. There is no way to unring a bell. There is no way to unopen an API. It's like Facebook learned that the hard way with Cambridge, right? Like they fixed the issue back in 2015. And yet, the impact on the election happened in 2016. We can mm -hmm. debate on how much those ads actually impacted the election. That's an academic exercise for a different time. But more fundamentally, there is very little control you have once you make the mistake in terms of how the mistake is going to hurt you or hurt somebody else, right? right? And I have to tell startup founders, I have to start VCs, tell VCs, would you like to find out at the last minute right before the hockey stick growth is about to take off that you have a major privacy problem? Like the large companies have huge teams. They can afford talent like me and they can consult with people like me and figure out those issues. If you look at the big tech companies, their stock prices have doubled since GDPR passed yeah. substantially because they have been able to adjust and improvise while the small companies have been smothered. That is why privacy engineering is important. Forget the ethics for a second. The ethics are important. 
Forget the do the right thing aspect. That's important. But purely the survival of your business will depend upon it because not everybody can be one of those big tech companies. So, I was going to say, with piracy engineering, it's kind of it's kind of a new thing. At least it's growing right now. But I don't know if I'm wrong. But no, you're right. You're right. It's, is, it's certainly an emerging discipline, even though yeah. some of the concepts have been there for a long time. The discipline is emerging. I was just going to ask Gabe. Is this something that you see only in larger companies happening right now, or is this all over the place starting to happen? It's starting to happen all over the place. Now, smaller companies can't always afford it. So in those right. companies, security and privacy are thought of as one and the same. And that's where the overlap matters. But I feel like the fundamental work, once you put aside the label, Cameron, like once you put aside things like encryption or once you put aside things like access control fundamentally you're trying to achieve the same goal which is make sure the only people who access data are the ones who should access it you keep it for as long as you want to keep it not a day longer and you make sure that you monitor audit things on an ongoing basis those three things remain common whether you're a big company or a small company so i would say you could call it it security platform security you know privacy engineering there is a significant level of overlap the only difference i would call out cameron is that Within privacy engineering, there is a special component where you don't just look at systems holistically. You put in the human context as to what happens if a different human being were using the system? What would happen if a different person with bad intent were using it? So there are differences, but I would say the starting point is the same across the board. But I would also agree this discipline is new, but I'm seeing more and more traffic every single day in terms of adoption, job openings, things like that as well. I believe the words you were looking for there to describe that individual was empathetic. Correct. Um, you and I both know, having lived in a product world for a long time, like empathy underpins all the things we do. And without that, there's no way to solve for the customer's problems. Uh, I am skeptical. I'm skeptical about the level of empathy that we collectively have about solving this problem. And I say that equally because the consumer has been beat down by this problem so much, they don't even have empathy for themselves anymore. Yeah, it's one of those things where the challenge has been it happens very frequently, right? It, because you hear about these breaches. There was the Aquifax breach. There was a British Airways breach. There was a colonial pipeline breach and people become numb to it. But I don't think people have lost empathy because the problem is there's you always think people care. And then you convince yourself that they don't care because nothing fundamentally changes, whether it's the political system or cheating in sports or it's bad technology. But there always comes a point. I was watching the documentary Chernobyl. Have you guys seen that? The mm-hmm. on, it's on HBO Max. There's a, the actor who plays, who has also a role in Mad Men, he has a pretty impressive part. I forget his name. He's a British actor, a very, very mm-hmm. good actor. Yeah. He says at the end that every lie incurs a debt to the truth. Okay? That's a very, very powerful line. And I would add to that by saying that when the truth comes to collect, the truth doesn't do layaways. It doesn't do installments, right? There will be a point where people will lose trust. Okay, or there will be a point where truth will lose, lose all meaning and trust will lose all meaning. And at that point, the ability of a good company to distinguish itself from a bad company will be gone. Like, how would you feel if somebody sold fake blood at hospitals or fake vaccines? Like, we go through a lot of checks to make sure that doesn't happen. Do you or I want to live in a world where people don't trust companies anymore from a security perspective? Because customers could fight back by giving us bad data. Customers could fight back by constantly buying stuff and returning them, right? So people have a way to fight back. I just don't want to live to see in a world where we are dealing with the least common denominator. So I feel like people are numb to it, maybe, but I feel like that numbness will not last long. There will be a breaking point, and I'd rather we fix things before we get to that breaking point. Yeah, That's a good point that you made uh, now thinking back of that series. I don't see, Gabe, you've never seen it? No, I've I've heard of it. Um, I am, for those who know me intimately, the wrong person to ask, have you seen X? I, <laughs> sure. I got a mild case of something that doesn't allow me to spend time. Like, I'm, I'm an audio man. I'm a radio man, yeah. which is why I love the podcast format. I listen to tons of podcasts and tons of radio. It allows me to process that while still also doing things visually. And so I suffer. I suffer from not watching enough television. I well, use the word well, suffer big old You know the story of it, though. So, you, I mean... Yes, yes. Either way, either way, what's fascinating about your example and bringing up that show kind of makes sense in the fact that, like, in the show, when when all this goes down and they're all sitting in that room 
making that decision like should we let the outside world know kind of thing and they didn't really like all the people yeah. didn't really understand the severity of what was happening until they actually took them up in the helicopter and flew over the top of it and then could see like it was just fascinating how they did that 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 story to make you realize what they were going through and it like and it's kind of reminds me of how kind of security is and while well, people when they get breached they're like oh sh- sh- we're in it this happened yeah. Yeah, exactly <laughs> and i can almost guarantee you cameron and gabe where anytime there's a major security or privacy issue somebody some junior engineer somewhere wrote a memo saying that this is a problem and they couldn't get into the right meetings they couldn't convince the right executive and i feel some of it is also a cultural aspect where you want to make sure that the junior most engineer also get a chance gets a chance to express their concerns and mm-hmm. i have an open door policy where people can slack me or reach out to me and say hey here's an issue i may not be able to get it prioritized right then and there but the idea when you start building a culture where people are smothered from telling the truth and pointing out issues that's the real problem right mm-hmm. and more fundamentally this notion that somehow it won't be a big deal and it won't blow up in our face that overconfidence or that willful blindness is where the problem really lies and i and that this is why i'm writing this book because if nothing else if not if not appealing to people's conscience i want to appeal to people's sense of practicality that this is not that hard to fix honestly you can make a subst- a substantive level of progress without breaking the bank and in, in a way you will save a lot of money at the back end is the argument we're making here I reference white hat security my past experience there and I, I want to bring them back up again because what you highlight somewhere a junior engineer wrote a note about that we took years of vulnerability data that we had collected and we took all of the other peripheral information that we collected so what types of vulnerabilities they were how frequently they occurred how what rate they were being closed and addressed and who were the ones that were reintroducing those same ones that they closed most, et cetera. And we were trying to figure out in, in almost kind of a Gene Kim style, you know, when he went through his big DevOps exercise, like we were trying to figure out like, what are the behaviors that lead to better application security outcomes? Spoiler, accountability was the number one, number one thing that we could point to that had a direct line between whether or not an organization had better application security outcomes versus not and something tells me that privacy engineering is going to live in the same space for the same reasons you mentioned somebody will have wrote that memo and no one will have been accountable for having read that memo and doing a darn thing about it exactly and then this is part of why and in my last chapter i talk about a framework for maturity right you need to make sure that there is an internal team or an external team or even if you can't find those teams have a self-understanding of exactly where you are at, right? So I'll say an immature program has these characteristics. A more mature program has these characteristics. And a more next-generation future-forward program has these characteristics. So it's a three-dimensional table, if you will. And I yeah. feel like as an, as an executive, if you know that your organization is immature in terms of how you operate, your cybersecurity and privacy practices probably are immature as well, right? And you cannot sign off on that level of maturity and somehow be surprised when there is a breach. Right. So it's a way, it's a construct to give engineers a way to uplevel these issues. And it's a way to hold the executives accountable at the end of the day. Because, right. you know, more fundamentally, I also want to be a little benign, a little kind to the companies that deal with this, because sometimes stuff just moves very, very fast. Like there are instances uh, when our apps have outages just because somebody moved the wrong property someplace or just because somebody didn't update their data someplace. There's always, there's sometimes malfeasance and sometimes there's incompetence and there's a vast spectrum in the middle, right? So this is about overall organizational maturity and making sure that the right communication skills exist. I'm also teaching a course on LinkedIn about how engineers can get promoted. I was just talking about how you need to be an advocate for your discipline. It's not sufficient to speak from the place of ethics. You need to demonstrate what will happen. What is the business cost? My advice to people, and I hope when people listen to this, they take it to heart, is that you can't always appeal to people's sense of doing the right thing. You need to put a dollar amount to it, which is if these breaches happen to us or if this becomes a regulatory issue or if a customer gets pissed off and writes us an email to extract all their data, here's how much it will cost us. Because you need to bring that numerical argument to people's desks because otherwise sometimes people don't listen. And as an engineer, you're supposed to have that muscle because otherwise you won't get far either for privacy or in your own career. 
That is that is excellent advice. Uh, I hope everyone does listen to that. It's necessary. Is that your only thought there? <laughs> I, thought, I thought you were going somewhere else with it. <laughs> it's just long pregnant pause. See how long. Yeah. I uh, it threw me off. I was like, I was, I was getting, it was you were pulling me in. <laughs> I was coming closer. Okay. Right. Well, I mean, I, I did pause to think about a couple other things too, though, because man, there's so many, there's so many overlaps and corollary with my old life again in the apps appsec world as there are to the the sec engineering world, and it's why I've been I've been digging into it so much as well too, because you know naturally my brain just kind of understands the two for, for for the obvious reasons, and the thing that I, I I feel like I'm struggling with articulating to my audiences, namely everyone else out there, maybe your book's doing a much better job of it than I am, is the importance of why. Of course, we've made this human before. You, know, you and I talked about this. Cam, Cam and I talked to you about making this human in the, in the last episode where we, where, when we had you on. I'm not sure if it's enough, though. Yeah, I mean, it's not enough, but I feel like the incremental step will go a long way because what happens is when you make it more incremental, when you provide people some tooling, a few things happen. First, people see how much they they need to do and they start they stop doing the bad stuff going forward, right? Like, yeah. it's a bit like, you know, I was reading a book about addiction recently and the reason why alcoholics have a hard time, and this is again what the book said, the reason why alcoholics have a hard time is because they're afraid of pausing because when they pause to stop drinking alcohol in the future, they have a, a moment to look at the mirror and understand exactly what they have done to their body and their face, right? And they're afraid of that moment of reckoning and that's why they keep drinking. It's a little ironic that you keep doing the bad thing because you're afraid of stopping what the bad thing looks like, right? Uh -huh. So my hope is this book comes in as a moment of pause where people realize that, okay, you've been doing bad stuff in the past, but there is a way to pivot this. There's a way to turn this around. There's a way to demonstrate this is our starting point in terms of we, we're going to collect less data. We're going to stop giving people more and more access to data. We're going to clean up our passwords and secrets in all over in code and logs. We're going to keep our attention period to make sure that stuff doesn't stay in, ad infinitum in our, in our systems. We won't make copies of sensitive data because we will know what that data is, right? So you can at least stop making things worse and at some point deal with the legacy that point forward. So I feel like making it human will help because people right now don't know what to do. And therefore, in their paralysis, they continue doing bad stuff, even as they are accruing more debt while doing it, right? So that's the use case here. That's what I'm going for. I have I have something I want to flip. So you, you, you brought up the human part of it. Mm -hmm. And in our world, automation is becoming bigger and bigger. Now, my question to you is, how important is the automation needs when it comes to privacy engineering? And where is it even necessary in certain companies and tools? Is it always necessary? I would say automation is extremely critical. I would say automation is very, very helpful. Automation, again, is not the only uh, get out of jail card here. But I would say if you're going to scale as a company, because most companies are starting this process not at the beginning, but in somewhere in the middle, right? So automation will start, help, will help you understand exactly where you're at. They'll give you, a, it, it's like the automation in this case is like a thermometer. It'll tell you the temperature. And then it's like the thermostat. It'll tell you exactly what you need to get the temperature to and help you get there. So automation serves the purpose of climate control. But automation, but human intervention is a bit like, you know, you got a sick baby or you got an animal that's panting and you sort of use a book to sort of fan them down a little bit, cool them down. That's what human beings are like. So on a, on a hot summer day, which is kind of what cybersecurity is going through right now, Automation is like the thermometer and the thermostat. Sorry for that Zoom notification there. <laughs> Automation is like the thermometer and the thermostat. But you also need some human care and concern. Automation will help you scale. It'll help you capture metrics. It'll create objectivity in the process. It'll create the process that's a lot more deterministic. And frankly, that's the only way a lot of these budget-constrained companies will be able to get to the next level. Mm -hmm. But you also need a level of human oversight to allow for the edge cases, which is sort of where people fall in trouble. Like who would have thought that Target would get breached because of the HVAC system, just because the vendor didn't have MFA? Who would have thought that the Colonial Pipeline folks would make the exact same mistake seven years later because of an account that was set for VPN access that also didn't have MFA? A human being would have checked that stuff, but so would have automated scans 
to verify that the account had not been used for the last six months. The mm -hmm. account has a password that has been compromised on the dark web and the account doesn't have MFA. You meet all three conditions, either a human being or automation would flag that and the account would have immediately been deactivated and you wouldn't have had the entire East Coast in a panic over gas prices, right? So I would say you need a bit of both. But I would say if can't, you can't allow both, at least start with the automation. Have one of your non-privacy engineers write some tooling and see where you stand and then build from that point forward. Get started somewhere is kind of what I'm going for here. You know, there was and still is a little bit of a perverse incentive in the startup world, because we're, we're also talking about, you know, small companies in there, to not do anything about security. Because, you know, at some point it gets them in the news, right? There's no such thing as bad news. I fear they're going to take the same approach when it comes to privacy. I would love to meet anybody who thinks bad news about security and privacy is, is good news because I'm seeing a lot of nervousness in this space. Like, it's interesting the things people often are concerned about, but they don't know where to go. They don't know where to ask. Like, as an example, if you are struggling deploying code and you don't know how to use a tool like Spinnaker that Netflix open sourced, there's an entire community on Stack Overflow that'll help you do that. Okay, because to admit to the world at large that you can't deploy code at scale is not exactly a bad move, right? It's, it's like you're showing the world, hey, we're doing the next thing, help us out. But if you tell the world that, hey, we don't know how to do privacy right, then it, it raises all kinds of questions about, hey, what else are you not doing, right? So people are afraid to ask. And I feel like people masquerade as braggadocio what is actually fear. And I think that's what's really at, at risk here. And I think what's going to happen, my bet is at the end of COVID, there's going to be a massive reckoning about, we collected all this data about kids learning from home, people's healthcare data about contact tracing, people working from home about compromises that left the company susceptible to, right? So there's going to be all that moment of reckoning and enforcement of new privacy and cybersecurity laws will start once the regulatory machine really cranks up. We have a democratic president in the White House uh, and we know they'll want to be looking at this again. And that's just... I'm not even breaking news here. They've said as much publicly. So I feel like I would rather do the right thing and benefit my business than do the wrong thing, lose trust and hurt the business all at once. It's a bit like global climate change uh, on the assumption that there are no skeptics around here. You could basically pretend that climate change isn't happening, but do the right thing and still make a contribution. Or you could make the problem worse. And before you know it, the water is at your knees. So Nishant, what if I'm uh, what if I'm an engineer, and I want to I want to get a certification around privacy engineering, or I want to go down that road? Besides reading your book, um, what are some some ways I can do that and, and advance my career? So I'm actually working on a certification as well. So that that's coming up later on this year. But I would say for advancing this year, I would say to advance your knowledge in this space, learn a few things. Learn things about data. How would you make data go back and forth in persistent stores like Hadoop and Hive. How would you understand, how would you teach yourself data moving back and forth from real-time databases like Cassandra and Hive? How do you study the mobility of data back and forth and make sure data gets protected in transit at rest? How would you make data, data less identifiable? So a lot of this is about learning math. It's about learning conventional programming. It's about learning how data flows across the systems. It's about learning regular expressions. These are things that have applicability way beyond privacy. If you learn these tools about privacy and security engineering, you could become a better data scientist. You could learn machine learning better. It opens up a whole bunch of other careers. And that's part of the argument I'm making here, Cameron, which is that privacy engineering is a gateway career to other careers as well. And that's when I tell people that they get very excited because, hey, you make a ton of money. Privacy and security pay a ton of money. It's like mm -hmm. people complain about student loans. I'm like, I wish I could talk to these folks that are under student debt and help them learn privacy engineering. It combines the sense of ethics and morality and the classics that we all care about. And it brings to world, brings to life products in that are privacy and security safe as well. So I would say learn some of those techniques, pick an area of vulnerability, Make yourself marketable, and I think you're off to the races because the problems outnumber the people willing and able to fix them, in my opinion, right now. Yeah, the industry right now is this security and privacy has got to be the hottest industry, in, I, in my opinion, for, right in now. In the Bay Area, we're competing for talent. Like the same 15 companies are fighting over each other's talent because there are only so many people that we can hire. That's the challenge here. Hey, they should share the, the wealth over here on the East. I know yeah. that. I'm sure they are. I'm sure they are. Well, you've got some pretty good talent on these. Carnegie Mellon is doing a lot of good stuff in that in that space. But there just isn't enough talent because there's just more needs right now yeah. because we haven't trained enough people in the space. That's the only challenge. That's fair. Yeah. What, um, 
since the last uh, episode that we did with you and besides the new chapters that you added in your book, what else has changed? What are you working on besides the book and what's, uh, what's next? A lot of animal rescue work happening on the side uh, that continues rescuing elephants, dogs, and Michael. Oh, awesome. uh, that is even more important than the book in my life, uh, just to make sure uh, that is we are going to hand off a planet to our next generation. We want to make sure that it's in better shape than we found it. We're not doing a great job of it right now, but we're doing what we can with the folks I work with. I'm also, to your point, Cameron, working with a company that I can't really disclose a whole lot of details right now to come up with the first industry certification for privacy and security engineering. The goal is to have eight chapters that are very interactive in nature where people can learn hands-on skills on not just how to build the right tools, how to make the case, how to improve existing tools, and basically train themselves and market themselves as privacy engineers. And offload some of the burden off of companies. So that's been going on as well. Uh, Teaching a lot of courses on LinkedIn about how to get promotions, how to build a promo packet for yourself. And then in my copious free time, walking my dogs and just, uh, you know, living life, living the dream. I want to hear a lot more about this uh, certification. I am, as most people would know, not a massive certification proponent, but that is usually a true statement of non-practical certifications, right? And in, in what you're describing sounds rather practical. Correct. So, yeah, yeah. So I, 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 I'm, I'm anxious. Maybe we can talk offline about that a bit. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And definitely, I'm sure the next podcast we can do talk, talk about that. It'll be, it'll be great. But yeah, it's going to be very, very practical, very hands-on. The goal is to create. I'm getting tired of not being able to hire talent. So I'm just going to go out and create a certification and make sure the talent pipeline opens up. So if if the international community or the government won't create a certification, those of us- Build it yourself. Train, yeah, let's do it ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's the American American dream, right? American way, I guess. Exactly. Fix it. We're fixing yeah. to fix it. Just do it yourself. Pull up your sleeves. Yeah. Well, Nishant, is there anything else that you wanted to add um, that we didn't get to touch on on this Just episode? Both of you. I, I, I love the broadcast. I love the online conversations. The two of you have done more to further this conversation than just about anybody I can think of in the industry. And I just wish you guys had existed like 10 years ago when I was new in this field. But I hope today's engineers appreciate the amazing work the two of you are doing. So I just want to close with that. I Thank you so much. Thank you very much. And I appreciate the work you're doing in this space of privacy engineering, right down to getting some certifications on the street. So if there's any additional links you'd like to share in this week's episode, let us know. Um, I'll also make sure we pop a link up to the uh, the awesome privacy engineering project that's hanging out there in GitHub. Yes. It's got a whole collection of resources that folks can go look at right now if they want to get ahead of this problem and start understanding some of the things they may need to know and learn about. Definitely, definitely. And I sent you the link to the book on the chat window so you have that as well, the updated title. So, Awesome. Well, Nishant, until next time, I'm sure we will have you on uh, as, soon as, as soon as you have the time. Definitely. Thank you so much again, Cameron. Gabe, thank you. Thank you. Well. Thank you, Nishant. Be well, my friend. Till next time. I just wanted to thank all of you out there for tuning in each and every week. And to all of our amazing guests for coming on. I know that there are millions of other shows and it means the world to have you with us on this journey. We are so grateful that you choose to listen to us each and every week. If you like the show, tell a friend, have them tell their friends, and then make maybe make some new friends along the way uh, so we can continue to spread the word and keep learning together. Let's protect what matters most. And by the way, DJ, can you go ahead and drop that outro beat and keep it classy? We'll see y'all next week.